After a couple of weeks off uh, being on a mission trip in Guatemala, it is good to be back with you. Uh, thank you for all your prayers for the team that went down there. We had uh, an incredible time uh, serving in Guatemala. We had a group of, of people that were uh, teaching and serving at Morning Glory Christian School. We had a team of people that were doing midwife training with uh, nurses and, and other women. And then there were a couple of us that led uh, pastor's training, a pastor's conference. And uh, what a wonderful time we had. It's good to be back uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Excited to start this new series called Looking Up. Three words. I need help. When was the last time you said those words? Actor John Hamm, star of the show Mad Men, did a stint in rehab for alcohol addiction. Uh, recently, he confessed in an interview, I am certainly damaged. There's no denying it. When your mom dies when you're nine and your dad dies when you're 20, and then you live on couches in other people's basements. We live in a world where to admit anything negative about yourself is seen as weakness. It's not weak to say, I need help. Without a doubt, every person here this morning needs help in one way, shape, or form. Uh, perhaps it feels trivial. Maybe you need help with your taxes. Maybe you need help getting in shape. Maybe you need help just cleaning around the house. But maybe it's bigger than that. Perhaps your need for help is centered around needing help with a sin. Maybe you feel angry at a coworker or a family member. Maybe it's a struggle with pride or selfishness or alcohol or pornography. And sometimes that cry for help comes from a place of utter desperation. Maybe you're in the middle of a marriage crisis, a full-blown alcoholism, or a devastating physical illness. Our need for help highlights our humanity. We all need help in small and great ways. It marks us as human. I remember when I was new in ministry, one of our students in our college ministry was in a car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver. There were multiple people in the car, and one person was killed on the scene. Our student, Matt, was airlifted to JPS Hospital in Fort Worth. And as his life hung in the balance, I drove to the hospital to be with the family. As I got there, several of his friends who were with him that evening were pacing in the waiting room, waiting to hear an update on Matt's condition while he lie in a coma. It was a place of utter desperation, a place that, that no one wants to be, yet Many of us have found ourselves in a place like that at one point or another. His mom was crying out to God for help. His friends were crying out to God for help. His grandfather prayed that he would take Matt's place if he could. And in the midst of it all, I found myself praying that God would help this family and that God would save Matt's life. Uh, thankfully, Matt survived though his life is forever changed. He's confined to a wheelchair, but God spared his life. I don't know where you find yourself today on this spectrum of needing help, but, but I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to identify an area of your life where you need help. And I want you to, to, to revisit that after we look at Psalm 121 this morning and see how God's words speak to your life. Psalms 120 through 134 are called the Psalms of Ascent. 
It comes from a word meaning to go up. That's why we're calling the series Looking Up. They're often called the Pilgrim's Psalms. Ten of these psalms are anonymous. Four of them are attributed to David and one to Solomon. These psalms form something of a, of a traveler's or, or a pilgrim's hymnal as the Hebrew people would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate their three major annual feasts. There was Passover in the spring. There was Pentecost in early summer. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. Now, there are some who see Psalm 21 as a hymn sung back and forth between people as they would make their way up to Jerusalem because there's that change in subject from the first person to the third person in verse 3. Other people believe that what we see here is an internal dialogue between a person's soul, similar to what we see in Psalm 42 and 43. Now, it's worth noting that a form of the word first translated watches in the NIV in verse 3, a form of that word appears six times in this psalm. Verse 3, 4, 5, twice in verse 7, and verse 8. In the NIV, it is translated as keep in verse 7. In other English translations, it shows up as preserve or guard or protect. Yahweh or Jehovah is mentioned five times. That lets us know that help for God's people does not come from Baal or from any other ancient false god. Help does not come from our modern idols of money, stuff, security systems, and politicians. No, the only one that we can truly count on in any time is the Lord, who is one, the maker of heaven and earth. Two, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Three, he is there day and night. And four, he protects us from all harm, both now and and forever. Therefore, like a big traveling family reunion, God's people would sing these songs together to help them focus on the Lord and all that he had done for them. But I think it raises a question. Why did God require them to make these long annual pilgrimages each year? I love the insights of scholar Warren Wearsby. He writes, under the leadership of Moses, the Israelites were a nomadic people for 40 years. But after they settled in Canaan, the Lord required them to go to Jerusalem three times a year. This reminded them that spiritually speaking, they were still a pilgrim people who needed to depend on the Lord. David said, for we are all aliens and pilgrims before you. Too many believers today want to be settlers, not pilgrims or strangers. We're guilty of what Eugene Peterson calls a tourist mindset, content to make occasional brief visits with the Lord that are leisurely and entertaining, all the while conforming to this world and enjoying it. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that should make a difference on our lives on earth. We need to feel temporary as we make this pilgrim journey called life. With that introduction, would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Psalm 121, we will begin reading together in verse 1. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. 
The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch your coming and going, both now and forevermore. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. What I want us to look at today are four truths in this text that demonstrate that God is our help. The first truth I want you to notice is that God's power is before me. God's power is before me. Verse 1, I look my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, the mountains there can represent uh, two different things. On one hand, the mountains provide a safe haven for robbers and for petty terrorists. But on the other hand, the mountains are that which pointed to and led to Jerusalem. So the mountains are an occasion for anxiety on one hand and anticipation on the other. In Hebrew, help is the word ezer. The psalmist is asking where? Who is the one who will keep me from stumbling in life's journey? Who will overshadow me? Who will be by my side? Who will keep me from evil and will never leave me or forsake me? And so I started to wonder for me, and maybe for you too, what are some of the mountains that we look to for help? What are some of the things that we look to first to put our hope in? Because let's be honest, usually it's not God first, right? We look to myself. We, we think, I will fix this. Through my will, my determination, my resolve, I will make this right. I will fix whatever problems that I have. Or we look to others. We look to a spouse, a, a friend, a boyfriend or girlfriend, anyone else who may have knowledge or expertise, they can help me. Or we look to distractions. We look to false comforts. We look to things like Netflix or, or food or alcohol or, or pornography. When difficulty comes, we're surrounded with options. There, there's a thousands of, of hills, a thousands of, of idols on a thousand hills that surround us. What will we do? Where will we find our help? Unlike so many of the Psalms where the problem is described in detail, this one doesn't. In recognizing the need for help and asking where it comes from, it's almost rhetorical for the psalmist. The point of Psalm 121 isn't to focus on the problem, but rather to stop and focus on the one and only solution to the problem, Yahweh. Verse 2 answers his question, and it takes a giant leap from the mountains to the one who made them from the one who made the mountains to the one who made the universe. This is an argument from the smaller to the greater. The creator God of Genesis 1 and 2 is his power source, his help in times of trial and difficulty. Yahweh made heaven and earth. He made me and cares for me. He is omnipotent in power, omnipresent in presence, omniscient in knowledge. He is great and powerful, powerful and personal. John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 reveal that this great and awesome creator God is also our great and awesome redeemer, King Jesus. I like the old song, This Is My Father's World. Verse 3 declares, This is my Father's world, oh let me ne'er forget 
that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. So here's the application. When you find yourself in trouble, when you are struggling like the psalmist is, here's what I would say to you. Instead of ignoring your need, admit your need. There's going to be times, inevitably, when we will need help. And the main determining factor for whether or not we receive help will be whether or not we ask for it. I know this seems overly simplistic, but that is the main determining factor. The people who find themselves helped by God are the people who cry out to God, God, I am in need and I need you to show up. All throughout the Psalms, we see David crying out, God, I am in trouble. God, I am in a dark spot right now and I need you to show up. Psalm 121 invites us to live a life where we cry out, where does my help come from? Because I need help. Many people know that the Titanic set out on its transatlantic journey and it didn't have enough lifeboats. They only had 20 lifeboats when they probably would have needed double that amount to, uh, to serve everyone on board. But what's really interesting is of those 20 lifeboats, only 18 of them were, on, were actually released to help people get out of the Titanic. But there were 472 open spots on those lifeboats. 472 lives that could have been saved of the more than 1,500 people who died. Almost a third of them could have been saved if they would have simply said, I need help. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe today would be a time where you could say back to God, God, instead of ignoring my need, Instead of turning to the mountain of self, instead of turning to the mountain of others, instead of turning to the mountain of, of, of false comforts and distractions, well, whatever else it is that we look to for rescue, I am in need today, and God, I am asking you to show up. Instead of ignoring your need, admit your need. The second truth I want you to notice is that God's providence is with me. God's providence is with me. Verse three, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There is a change from the first person to the third person as this psalmist dialogues with his soul. This is healthy soul talk. The four negatives that appear are crucial to the argument of these two verses. The God who watches his chosen people, Israel, is the same God who now watches me on a personal day-by-day basis. He will not allow my foot to slip, meaning he will not let it slide, he will not let it stagger, he will not let it be shaken, he will not let it be moved, which tells us that there is a moment-by-moment protection over us by Jehovah. Providentially, he is guarding us and he is guiding us. Two times in in these two verses, it says that he watches us or he keeps us. In the New Testament, Jude picks up on this aspect of God's character and applies it to his providence in our lives. Jude 24 and 25 wonderfully declares, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. See, pagan gods need sleep. Pagan gods need rest. But not Jehovah. Twice it says he does not slumber or doze off. He does not sleep. He does not get tired. He does not take naps. He does not eat. He does not have need of anything else either. Psalm 34, 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 24-7, I might add. And his ears are attentive to their cry. Back in the time when this was written, one of the major gods that was worshipped by foreign nations was Baal. And one of the priests of Baal's main jobs and their interaction with this god was to wake him up. So when the Israelite prophet Elijah was sort of going at it with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, he says in verse 27, shout louder, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. The implication is if your God is sleeping when you need him, then maybe you don't have much of a God, do you? But our God is always awake. He never falls asleep on the watch. He never nods off or dozes off. He never even gets distracted. You can pray to him at any time, and he always focuses on you, and he hears you. And because God never slumbers or sleeps, that means that you can. Because our God is awake, you can sleep. I'll tell you, even as my daughter gets older, she still wants me to to lay beside her as she goes to bed at night. She sleeps better, and she falls asleep quicker when I'm laying by her side. It helps her to know, it gives her peace knowing that that I am there watching over her. And it's the same way with God. It does not matter what problem you're dealing with, you can leave it in God's hands and you can sleep knowing that God never slumbers or sleeps and he will take care of it. He'll take care of you. The third truth I want you to notice is that God's presence is beside me. God's presence is beside me. Verse 5, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. These two verses begin with two powerful poetic promises that unfold like a set of stairs, with each additional step providing a further word of promise and assurance. Again, Wearsby says, our keeper is on his throne looking down on us, but he is at our side to shield us from all harm. Shade there speaks of his protective presence. He overshadows us with his care. At his right hand speaks of his personal presence. I awaken and he is there. I lay down and he is there. All through the day and all through the night, he is there. The sun and the moon stand for dangers that come in the day and in the night. Traveling through life, I will not fear the sun's heat during the day or the cold and darkness and terror of night. He's right there beside me, promising to never leave me or forsake me. 
I am promised his presence day by day, month by month, year by year. But it's even better than that. It's minute by minute. No, it is second by second. Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2 reminds us, whoever dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In December of 1914, Ernest Shackleton and his 27-member crew attempted to reach the South Pole in Antarctica. Aboard the ship Endurance, they entered the icy waters of the Weddell Sea. They navigated through dangerous pack ice. With only 100 miles left in their journey, Shackleton made the fateful decision to stop and to take a break in the heavy ice. The temperature dropped and the ice closed in around the ship, making it impossible to proceed. The crew would live aboard the ship for the next 10 months. Gradually, the ship succumbed to the crushing grip of the ice. Shackleton gave orders to abandon ship. The crew began a march to safety, carrying minimal supplies and dragging three lifeboats. Eventually, reaching open water, they boarded the lifeboats and they sailed off in an attempt to find land. Surviving perilous conditions, they finally landed on the deserted Elephant Island. Stranded on the island with no help of rescue, Shackleton and, and four other crew members set sail in a lifeboat in an effort to reach the island of South Georgia. Traveling 800 miles through the world's worst seas, they arrived only to discover that the whaling station was on the other side of the island. In order to rescue the remaining crew in time, Shackleton and two of his men must cross on foot the treacherous cliffs of the island, which were icy and threatening, vulnerable to sudden blizzards and hurricane winds. The island's inhabitants considered the journey impossible. Nevertheless, Shackleton and his two partners crossed in 36 hours. Shackleton's diary provides an interesting perspective on the South Georgia Island crossing. He wrote, I know that during that long and raking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that there were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions, but afterward, Worsley said to me, boss, I had a curious feeling that there was another person with us. And so it is with us. When we find ourselves in peril, when we find ourselves in danger, when we find ourselves where we're crying out and asking, who will help me? We know that God's presence is beside us. Fourth, I want you to notice God's protection is around me. God's protection is around me. Verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. To be kept from all harm does not imply a trouble-free life, but a well-protected life. It embraces the truth of Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Is it painful? Yeah. Is it paralyzing? No. Paul describes this protection in Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Maybe we can say it like this. God doesn't promise to prevent you from walking into harm, but he promises to preserve you when you encounter harm. That phrase, coming and going, it means every aspect of life. It it draws attention to the details of life. And the big things and the little things, God is there. Eugene Peterson says it so well. He writes, the Christian life is not a quiet escape to a garden where we can walk and talk uninterruptedly with our Lord, nor is it a fantasy trip to a heavenly city where we can compare blue ribbons and gold medals with others who have made it to the winner's circle. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, pay the same prices for groceries and gas, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is, is with each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know that we are ruled by God, and therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. The great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, read Psalm 121 and 135 in worship before he left for Africa in 1840. How appropriate for all of us who see ourselves as pilgrims, as as strangers in a world that's not our home. I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? This makes sense in light of the the grand storyline of Scripture. After all, it was from a hill, it was from a a mountain and beyond that our salvation has come. Evidently, God likes high places. Think of Mount Moriah where God provides a ram for Abraham, sparing his only son, Isaac. A preview of God not sparing his own son as he paid in full the penalty for all our sins. Think of Moses coming down from a mountain with God's law, the very expression of his character a law now written on our hearts. Think of Jesus on the mount, delivering the greatest sermon ever preached. Think of our Lord on the mount of transfiguration, transfigured with the Father declaring from heaven, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Think of Jesus on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, painting the prophetic portrait of the end times. Think of our Savior on Calvary's hill, bearing the full measure of God's wrath for sinners. Think of our Lord's great commission to the church on what Matthew calls in Matthew 28, 16, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Think of the Lord on the Mount of Olives ascending back to heaven but leaving us a promise in Acts 1, 11, and 12. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Finally, join the Apostle John on the island of Patmos for the glorious revelation vision. 
join him in the end of the book in Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11, where we read, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This church is the God who is our help. Why would we look anywhere else? For Christians, help has a name. The original readers of Psalm 121 didn't have a full picture of God yet, but for us as new covenant believers, help has a name, and his name is Jesus. And we can trust him in any and every storm, in any and every season of life. He is faithful, and we can trust him confidently because he has already quieted the largest storm, the greatest storm we will ever face. It is the storm of sin that separated us from God. He quieted it with his life, with his blood, with his death, and with his resurrection. Hope has a name, and if you don't know him this morning, we would love for you to meet him. The name of our hope is Jesus, the Messiah who in giving us his life invited us to confidently walk with him regardless of whatever trials may come in our life. We are the type of people who say, God, we trust you. God, we are walking with you. We are looking for you to be our help because our help has a name and his name is Jesus. Do you remember at the beginning of the message I asked you to think about that area, that problem in your life where where you need help? I promise you, I didn't solve it by going through Psalm 121 with you. But I did try to do the same thing the psalmist did. And that is point to the glory of God, the God who watches over you and the God who keeps you. Bachelor Creek, that is your application this morning. When you find yourself in need, look to God first. His power is before you. His providence is with you. His presence is beside you. His protection is around you. Preach this to your heart and soul. Preach it to your friends in need. Preach it to a world longing to know that they can have hope in sufferings and trial. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today, not ignoring our need, but admitting our need. God, we need you. Not all of us are going through the same things in life right now, but all of us have areas where where we try to look to ourselves or we try to look to others or we try to look to to distractions instead of you. And so, God, our prayer is that we would make the resolution today, that we would make the commitment that we're going to look to you first. When we look up to the mountains, when we look up to the hills in our lives, God, we are calling on you to meet the need in our life. And we can trust you. Because you are the same God who created the mountains. You're the same God who created the universe. You're the same God who cares for us. And you demonstrated that care for us by sending Jesus to be our hope. By sending to Jesus to be our help. 
Hope has a name. Help has a name. His name is Jesus. And God, if there is anybody here today, if there's anybody watching this today who does not know Jesus, I pray that today they would call on the name of Jesus to be their help, to be the Lord and Savior of their life. God, you've already taken care of the biggest problem that we have. You've taken care of the problem of sin. You have made a way where there was no other way. You have allowed us to be in relationship with you. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. So God, if there's anyone who needs to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that they would do that today. And I pray that all of us, no matter where we are at in our life, that we would look to you to be our help. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for watching over us. We pray this in Jesus' name.